You can get 10 weeks of The Spectator as well as unlimited access to our website, app and archive if you subscribe today. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash PIMS to get a free bottle of PIMS and 10 weeks of the issue for just £10. That's spectator.co.uk forward slash PIMS. But hurry, it's only while stocks last. Hello and welcome to Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. And this week, my guest is Mikkel Bork-Jakobsen, who's the Professor of Comparative Literature at the University of Washington and an expert in the history of psychoanalysis. Now, his new book is a fascinating investigation called Freud's Patients, A Book of Lives, in which he's gone and found out who those anonymized or pseudonymized people in Freud's case notes were and put real names and real stories to them. Mikhail, welcome. This is a gripping Thank investigation you. and obviously some considerable detective work has gone into it. But has this never been done before? It seems such, a, such an really, obvious thing to do. Not really. You've had uh, many, many books about individual patients, uh, Anna O, uh, the Rat Man, the, the Wolf Man, and so forth. But you never had a really exhaustive investigation into all the other patients that Freud treated. You know, he published basically about 10 uh, case histories, which is a very small number of case history is you know, to build a theory on 10 cases, it's, uh, it's a little far-fetched. But so the, the idea behind my book was, was to uh, study all the patients that I could find uh, and identify. And indeed, many of them had already been identified by Freud scholars before, but I've added a few ones and basically made a compilation of all these cases. And I should uh, add that I selected these patients as patients. That is to say, I didn't include in my anthology of uh, patients all the people who went to see Freud because they were interested in his theories or because they wanted to become analysts themselves. That is to say, they wanted to be trained. I stuck to patients who came to see Freud with a clear therapeutic request. They wanted to be you know, cured for some, uh, for some illness or for some existential problem that they could not be extirpated themselves from. And so that limited the number of uh, people I could include in, the, in this anthology. And so, uh, and, and again, as I said, some of them had already been studied by previous scholars, but others uh, not. And I've added a lot of material that is to be found mainly in the Freud collection at the Library of Congress in, in Washington. As you may know, Court uh, Eisler, uh, a psychoanalyst who is now uh, deceased, uh, in the early 50s, decided to create uh, something called the, the Sigmund Freud Archive, in which he basically collected testimonies from Freud's patients, surviving patients, or their relatives and, and friends. And he, uh, he amassed uh, a, a, an immense 
wealth of information on Freud's patients, on uh, their uh, families, their background, etc. And then he put everything under lock and key at the Library of Congress in Washington. And so until his uh, death in uh, 1999, uh, most of this material was completely inaccessible. You could not, uh, researchers could not have access to it. And since then, uh, this material has been uh, declassified, you know, slowly but surely. And especially from 2013 on, many of these interviews uh, that he made, uh, could I some made, uh, have been accessible. And uh, I have, of course, used this material uh, extensively. And so yes. I have complemented previous work on these patients with this material. You say in your introduction, which surprised me, that there's still a lot of stuff that's still classified. Sure. Why is that? Sure. And why did I still classify it at the time? Well, because I think basically he didn't want to contradict Freud's case histories. Basically, uh, you know, the whole of psychoanalysis is based on Freud's case histories, the, the narratives of his cures or therapies with uh, his patients. And so when Eisler talked to the people who knew about what had actually transpired during uh, these uh, cures, he probably realized that, you know, uh, <laughs> Freud's cases were an embellishment, to say the least, of what had actually happened. This, this is sort of shocking book to me, because, I mean, not, you know, looking as a non-scholar, I just go, he's made this stuff up. He's lied about this. He's falsified what actually happened. I mean, were you as shocked as I was as someone who was looking into this? Well, uh, of course I was shocked, but you know, uh, I had my suspicions anyway for a long time. So uh, no, I cannot really say I was shocked. Well, he lied, he embellished, uh, you know, there's a whole spectrum there. Uh, sometimes he was just convinced that he was right and forced his interpretations up on the on the patients. Other times he embellished the, the clinical data and sometimes, yes, he did actually lie. He just changed uh, a few things here and there because he wanted to, the material to fit his theories. So that is, you know, that is why I wrote this book. Uh, again, coming after many other Freud scholars who did the same work, just to show that the, the actual facts, the data on which Freud claimed to be basing the theories were very different from what you said. Now, Eisler himself, who obviously to some extent is a kind of bottleneck through which this information passes, was he a sort of fanatical disciple whose idea was to protect Freud and the edifice of psychoanalysis from scrutiny? Or is there, is there more shade to it than that? No, the answer is yes. Yes, he was a loyal Freudian. He was uh, basically... Anna Freud's deputy. He set up Freud archives with the blessing of Anna Freud, who basically told him who to interview and how and what to do with the material. And again, there was this whole setup. He donated 
the material to the Library of Congress with very strict restrictions time. The, the material could not be accessed before 2020, 2014, uh, etc. And uh, again, it, it, it's, he was there to protect the, the master. And can you give me some examples? I mean, I, I've gone through the, through the book, you know, on the contents page, making notes that say, you know, claim to have affected cure didn't, or got pe <laughs> got patient high, or falsified records, or, you know, I mean, what, what are the sort of more striking examples of things you found out that maybe Freudians would not like to be known? Well, again, I've known about, you know, the fact that uh, Anna O. Bertha Pappenheim was her real name, was, uh, was not cured by Breuer. Breuer, we should make clear, is Freud's great kind of predecessor, isn't he? But again, I mean, they all do all, almost none of the, the, the great cases Freud wrote about was actually cured by him. Uh, the only one that, in a way, was helped by Freud's ministrations was the rat man, according to uh, his relatives. Yes, he, he, he felt better after his analysis, but all the other ones, they, they were never cured. I've known that for, for years, uh, like uh, any other uh, Freud scholar. What was, what struck me this time around uh, when I did the, the research was the amount of suicides in Freud's clientele. You know, he, he never mentioned that anywhere in his uh, writings, but he had a lot of suicides. People who, for example, Pauline Silberstein, who was the, the, the young woman of, uh, of one of his friends, uh, threw herself from, the, from Freud's building uh, to her death. You had Kurt Rie, who was the, the brother of Freud's very good friend, Oscar Rie, who also committed suicide. And you have uh, another one, Gaitelis, who committed suicide. Now, you cannot blame Freud for these suicides. He just, you know, uh, he didn't cure them. Uh, these people were manic depressive, deeply depressive. And okay, that, that happens when you have people who uh, are afflicted with this kind of uh, illness. But but it's striking that he, he never mentioned it, never talked about it. Uh, he only talked about his so-called alleged uh, successes. So that, I think that is the one thing that really struck me when I wrote the book. Yeah, you do, I mean, you do talk when it comes, for example, the, the rat man, that case. You say some extremely disturbing distortions. I think it's the rat man, isn't it, where he, he invents a postman. A post um, woman, yes, post, post lady, yeah, yeah, absolutely, uh, <laughs> yeah. But that again, that is something uh, that, I, that I wrote about in a, in a previous book that I wrote with Sonu Shandazani, in which we, you know, basically deconstructed uh, Freud's narrative around the Ratner. But in this particular book, uh, I, I didn't really talk about that. I didn't, I, I, I was committed to sticking to 
the historical data yeah. and nothing else. I didn't contradict Freud's interpretations. I didn't even get into those interpretations. I did mention, you know, in passing as, <laughs> because you, you probably uh, you saw that, I, I mentioned in passing that he did distort the record, but I didn't delve on this uh, because my, my, my project in this book was to, to really stick to the fact in a very dispassionate way as far as it was possible to me and let the, the readers decide for themselves. There's the odd, the odd success. I mean, I think I've, I've, I've written in my margin by Albert Hurst, sort of success, yeah. question mark. Right. <laughs> I mean, we yeah, should, shouldn't indict him with, with a complete record of unbroken failure, should we? No, no, absolutely not. I mean, he, uh, uh, he did have some successes, quote unquote, like the one you, you mentioned, Albert Hirst was uh, one of his uh, patients, uh, the, the nephew of another famous patient, Emma Eckstein, and he had sexual problems. He was a young man and he had an orgasm. Yeah, he couldn't ejaculate. And uh, Freud, you know, didn't really analyze him. He just uh, gave him some sexual advice and apparently it worked. Finally, Albert Hiss was able to ejaculate. Uh, good for him. So that is, yeah, a what success. Now, there are a number of different, you know, we think of Freud as, at least, you know, lay people think of Freud as, as you know, somebody out on a couch talking, talking cure. But at least in the earlier part of his career, when he was under Breuer's sort of influence, he was trying all sorts of other things, wasn't he? Particularly hypnosis and drugs. How did his sure. sense of what he was doing evolve? Did he kind of blunder towards the talking cure? No, he didn't really blunder into the talking cure because in a way, when he hypnotized people, he was already asking them to speak in the state of somnambulism. And so, uh, no, he didn't stumble on the, the talking cure. It was a, an evolution. He just changed his mind about the efficacy of, uh, of hypnosis for, for you know, various reasons. It was a in a way, a logical outcome. Uh, but it, it, you're right. I mean, he, at the beginning, he, he, he dabbled in various techniques, uh, hypnosis being the, the most important one. He had learned about hypnosis when he went to Paris and studied under uh, Jean-Martin Charcot. But he also used electrotherapy at the time he used the whole gamut of uh, therapies that uh, was were used uh, uh, at the time by Charcot, among others, you know, hypnosis, uh, isolation. You would isolate patients from their families uh, and, and put them in, in private clinics. Uh, you had electrotherapy uh, and so forth. And then again, around 1893, he, he started his whole psychoanalytic technique. Now, some of these patients are particularly close to home. I mean, quite startling, you identify, and again, I don't know if this is in, in the previous literature, but that one of the characters he talks about turns out to be none other than his own wife. 
Yes. <laughs> tell, tell me about that instrument. It's kind of it's sort of very funny in its way. That story. It is very funny. It is very funny, and I must say, disclaimer here that my identification of this particular patient has been contested by other people. So I stick by my identification. I, I think I'm, I'm right. But anyway, uh, if I'm right, this patient who was the heroine of his very first case history was indeed his wife. Uh, his wife, according to the, uh, to the, the case history, uh, had trouble lactating when she gave birth to uh, their children. And um, he, according to the text, the article, he decided to hypnotize her and it, it worked fine. She was able to lactate after he had hypnotized her and gave, given her some suggestions under hypnosis. So that is actually, I would say, the only true undisputable success, therapeutic success of Freud. But you, you also say in that, I think I'm right in remembering, that in his case history, he says, you know, the problem is that the wife and her husband are very hostile to, yes. to the idea of psychoanalysis, and they don't really trust my, my hypnosis at all. Right. And, and that is why it took so long for this particular patient to be identified, because he was very clever. He, <laughs> he basically said, that, okay, I know this uh, woman from childhood. Good, uh, and I was able actually to observe uh, her after the treatment for a long time. Indeed, it was his own wife. But he added that she was married to someone else who was very <laughs> skeptical of his treatment. So everyone has been running around trying to find someone who he had known from childhood and who was, you know, uh, married to another man. So he protected his wife's privacy very uh, efficiently. In terms of what we'd probably now think of as medical ethics, I mean, obviously, working on your own wife tends to be against it. I mean, there's a sort of funny little cameo when he is Arthur Kerstler's old mum appears in here. Yes. Uh, <laughs> which is one of those funny coincidences. But she doesn't like him at all because he squeezes her neck and asks if she's got a lover. Yes. Do we think this is Freud being, if you like, what we now call inappropriate in a Me Too way, or is that an attempt to... No, no I don't think so. Uh, no, I mean, she she had a kind of tick, and so she went to see him for that. And remember, at the time, he was a neurologist, and so he would also, you know, for example, I can imagine that he would uh, uh, massage her, her neck in order to get rid of this uh, tick. So, no, I don't think there was anything inappropriate. What was inappropriate for her was she was a young woman at the time in the late uh, uh, 1890s. I'm sure that many other patients, Freud at that time, uh, had the same reaction to his uh, you know, questions. Of course. And, and some of these patients did sort of take again him quite strongly. I mean, Baron Victor von Durstey, or if that's how you pronounce him, kind of blamed Freud, more or less, for sort of murdering his soul as he saw it. Yes, yeah, absolutely. This is a very striking case. Uh, uh, Victor von Durstey was a kind of uh, a writer, an aesthete, 
And uh, he, he is one of these patients who, who uh, remained on Freud's couch for, for years and years. And at the end, he, he just, you know, he wrote that uh, his, he had been destroyed by analysis, by psychoanalysis. And that indeed, I mean, he used Freud's own, no, not Freud's term, President Schreber's term, the soul murder. And he said that he had been the victim for soul murder. That's, you know, again, that are his own words. I'm not commenting on, on it. Uh, on... That thing of staying on the couch for years and years. I mean, I, you know, I don't want this just to be a, a complete charge list of ethical violations by Freud, but one of the really striking cases you mentioned is that of Frieda Hirschfeld, where Freud writes, you know, there is no possibility of a cure. I can't do anything for her. But he says, however, psychoanalysis can learn from her case and profit from it, what's more. And he keeps her in for sort of 16,000 hours, presumably yeah. paid hours. I mean, he would keep treating people, even if yeah. he didn't think they were cured, if the money was still coming in. Is yeah. that a fair way of putting it? Absolutely. I mean... To be fair, I think that at the beginning of his career, Freud really did want to, to help people. There are many uh, examples of that. But after a while, I think he basically understood that he was not able to cure people, even though he never said so publicly. So for him, patients were there to allow him to, you know, confirm, prove, demonstrate his theories. So that was a point of uh, the whole enterprise. And of course, if they paid and paid handsomely, so much the better. Another of the strange cameos that comes in here is Atalos Vevo, who seems to have got Freud's number somewhat. Can you tell me about how his encounter with Freud? I mean, it was kind of at one remove. Oh, no, he, he, Atalos Vevo, the Italian uh, novelist, uh, didn't meet Freud, but his uh, brother-in-law uh, did, uh, Bruno Veneziani. And uh, Bruno Veneziani was, uh, was gay, he was homosexual, and the family really wanted to cure him of his uh, sin. And so they sent him to Freud before World War One, and Freud, uh, didn't like um, Bruno Veneziani, actually considered him as a kind of uh, mauvais sujet, as he uh, put it in French. And, uh, and basically, you know, after a while, he canceled him. <laughs> he told him, okay, I'm not gonna continue with you. Uh, you cannot be cured because you don't want to be cured. And uh, of course, Italo's favor, who knew about this, uh, was very shocked by what has happened uh, with, uh, with his brother-in-law. And, and that is, according to my reading, uh, to make a long story short, that is the core of Italo Svevo's uh, famous novel, uh, Zeno's uh, Consciousness or Zeno's, I don't know how it's translated into English. When you say it's consciousness or conscience, it's the same word. Yes, exactly. And because the book, uh, the, the novel that uh, Svevo wrote is about someone who is hypochondriac and who goes to see a psychoanalyst 
and the psychoanalyst asked uh, him to write his a diary in which he, he talks about himself and his, and so forth. And in the end, the last chapter of this book, uh, which is actually very funny, is about psychoanalysis and about Zeno, the character's realization that you know psychoanalysis is completely inefficient, and uh, and so the patient Zeno, the character cancels uh, the psychoanalyst. And so I think it's that's basically it's based on Svevo's experience. He knew through Bruno Benetiani how Freud conducted his analysis. Now, I mean, to, well, not analyze, but at least get a sense of it. How do you read Freud's attitude as changing over the years? I mean, do you think he came to a realization, you know, this theory I've got, is not helping people as much as I thought it would, but the theory is more important. Or do you, I mean, do you think it bothered him that you know he, he wasn't no. able to do what he thought? I, he I don't think it bothered him. That is, you know, the, that's what's most striking in uh, in all this. Again, as I said at the beginning, he clearly wanted to help people. He was a physician, a neurologist, and basically his, his meal ticket was curing people. If he didn't cure people, he wouldn't get clients. So no, I think he was really interested in curing people. And then he, he and Breuer thought that they had found a way of curing people by letting them speak under hypnosis and then on the couch about previous traumas. And when they did, supposedly they, they got cured. And that was based on basically an O case and a few other cases in which symptoms would, you know, disappear, uh, vanish temporarily when people were able to speak about their life and their traumas and so forth. After that, Freud clearly realized that it didn't work. So again, what what what, what is striking is that he. He didn't really mind. He was very cynical about it. And, and that is because he had a theory that uh, basically allowed him uh, not to be bothered by that because whenever patients wouldn't you know, uh, get better, he would basically blame it on the biology, on the fact that drives, for example, the death drive cannot be uh, you know, changed. If people are sick, if they are afflicted with you know, compulsion to repeat, well, what can we do? We can come up with a theory about the death drive and come up with a theory about compulsion to repeat. And what do you think the implications of what you've discovered in this book and in your studies of the real effects of Freud, Freudian analysis on the cases... What are its implications for our understanding of his theories and the weight we put on them? I mean, there's a whole industry globally that teeters on the top of these 10 case studies. Well, listen, as I said, I've tried in, in this book to refrain from drawing any conclusion about uh, what I'm telling you. You invite me to, to do I that. I invite you to speculate, yeah. <laughs> I'm not, in, I'm not going to speculate. I'm going to comment on the material. And indeed, I think the, the, the conclusion that could be drawn is uh, from, from this uh, 
investigation is, is quite simply that Freud was a speculative mind, uh, by his own admission, by the way, who elaborated theories, uh, very wide ranging theories about the mind, about human culture, human biology, uh, and so forth. And he basically forced his theories upon his patients, upon the clinical material, if you prefer. The way he conducted his analysis was not, as he claimed, a kind of neutral, impartial observation of uh, the clinical material upon which he would then, you know, build uh, his theories. It was kind of, it was, let me put it that way. It was a kind of uh, detective story. I mean, the, the case histories are detective stories uh, in which the detective, Freud, in this case, has an idea of who the culprit is and then tries to find clues that will allow him to get the culprit. In other words, he had a theory and he used his patients, his patients' words, in order to write a narrative that would fit the ready-made theory. So that is, I think, the, the, what, what comes out of these stories that I tell. The stories that I tell are not at all the stories that Freud tells. And that is quite simply because they don't fit the theory. The case histories fit the theory, not the true story. Do you think that there is, I mean, because I, I, I've heard it said that, that, you know, Freud in some ways was more a sort of literary critic or a cultural theorist than a doctor. And I mean, do you think that there is some value in the theories themselves as a way of thinking about human culture about consciousness, about, you know, human relations and power dynamics? No. <laughs> no. Again, I, I'm too familiar now with the, the actual uh, stories on which Freud built his theories to believe, to still believe in uh, these theories. Are you a recovering Freudian? Did you... In my youth, <laughs> I was, yes, not really a committed Freudian, but I was, you know, uh, I was a Freudian. I, was, I did believe in the unconscious, for example, and I did believe in many other things. Now I don't. I, I mean, I completely, I'm a complete skeptic. I don't think there is any such thing as the Freudian unconscious. There may be another unconscious, but not the Freudian one. You see, the, the, the whole, project with my book, the latest one, is precisely to, to show the disconnect, the complete disconnect between the theory and the facts. Freud, you have to remember, I mean, he was a speculative mind, highly speculative mind. And I think the reason why so many philosophers, artists, intellectuals were fascinated by Freud is because of his speculations, speculations on you know, the, the Oedipus complex, the, the death drive, the murder of the primal father and so forth. But Freud was also 
he, he claimed uh, to be a scientist. He saw himself as a scientist. And, and that meant to him that he was basing all his theories on the, the observation of facts. And again, that is why it's so important to try to reconstruct the actual, the actual narrative of his therapies, because then you, you see that there is, there is no basis for these narratives. His narratives are theoretical fictions. Uh, that is to say, he, he used the, the clinical material to construct a narrative that would fit an overarching theory. Do you expect to get pushback on this book? Because there, you know, there are a lot of Freudians out there. I mean, do you think it will oh, yes. convince them? No, I don't think anything can convince them. Uh, <laughs> we have tried, we, meaning Freud scholars, have tried for, for, for decades to try to make them a little less faithful. But I don't think there is any hope in that regard. Uh, people who have committed themselves to Freudian theory will continue. Yeah, when you say faithful, um, it makes it, it sounds as if it's, it's almost a sort of cranky religious cult rather than a, a sort of scientific edifice. Psychoanalysis is a wonderful way of converting people. And that happens on the couch, mainly. You can see in, uh, in my book, uh, I tell the stories of a few people who became committed Freudians in analysis and who would quite simply continue uh, the analysis despite the fact that you know, it didn't work, uh, despite the fact that uh, nothing changed in their symptoms. For example, uh, Horace Frank, who was uh, an American psychiatrist who came to see Freud because you know, uh, he was uh, manic depressive, something that Freud didn't see. Anyway, uh, he, he became a complete devotee of Freud. And, and, and when Freud tried to convince him that he was a closet uh, homosexual who needed to, to, to divorce from his actual wife and marry a, a, a wealthy um, millionaire, American millionaire, he just, Frank just, you know, he did what Freud told him to do, despite the fact that it, it completely destroyed his family, it destroyed the, the other uh, woman's family and so forth. And it all ended in, in, a, in a tragedy. But, you know, Frank just, uh, continue to to obey the master, and so I think there is something in psychoanalysis that is that I don't know how. Again, I, I use the word conversion uh, that converts people, that makes them go down a very dangerous path, which is you know you, you become a disciple, and, and the reason is basically that according to Freud himself, the only way you can get cured in analysis is if you accept Freud's interpretations, right? The whole an analysis consists in, in for, the, for the analyst, in removing all the patient's resistances uh, to the right interpretations. And so 
in other words, the only way you can get cured is to believe in Freud. So I think there's, there's a kind of recruiting aspect in the analysis itself that is very, very strong and that people uh, have a hard time to, 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 to get out of. Well, there's still money to be made out of it, is one thing Freud was right about. Uh, probably. Mikael Borkjapimsen, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you so much, then. listening to the spectators books podcast very much hope you enjoyed it and if you did please do consider rating or reviewing us on the itunes store we'd love to hear from you